Yes, beautiful songs of somewhere else, another place, in a place that will be at the end of our pilgrimage here on this earth. As the, the great hymn goes, this world is not our home, we are just passing through. And that's the perspective we ought to take at all times. It's almost as if life is lived knowing that there is someplace else. We all started in our mother's womb, but we could only stay there how long? About nine months. And then uh, we went on to a, a bassinet. Uh, I think I lived there for a little while in a bassinet. And then I was able to move on to a crib and then to a twin bed eventually as I got older. Uh, but not my own place. I had to share a, a small bedroom with my brother uh, in my early years. And uh, I was on the top of the bunk bed. Uh, he was on the bottom, and that was way too small for both of us. We did not get along too well. I did not respect his rights and privileges as a younger brother. Uh, but my mom and dad said, well, if you want to live somewhere else, you can live in the basement of the house. I said, okay, I'll take the basement. But I was there with the washer and dryer and uh, things like that. But it was my own place. But it still wasn't a home. It was just the basement. Uh, later on, um, the property we lived down in Napa, uh, as we were building a new home, I was able to live in the top of a water tower. Uh, we had this water tower where water was put up in a tank at the top. In fact, it was called the tank house. But it had a small room up there, and I had to walk up the steps. There's no shower or uh, toiletry facilities. I had to go down to the main house, but it was still another place I lived that I could kind of call my own. Uh, lived in a travel trailer for a while, again, as the house is being completed. House was completed, but I only lived there probably about nine months until I went off to college. Got put into a dorm room, bottom level of the oldest dorm. Uh, second year, I got to go into a nicer dorm, but still had to share a room. Uh, the first year, share a room with three people. Second, just two. Uh, later on, graduated the first round of college and went into a house, rented a room. And maybe this sounds like your story, where you've always been moving from one place to another. Um, I've lived in more places I could count. I thought one time, just write it down every place. Rented homes, apartments, homes I owned, uh, condominiums. It's as if God is reinforcing by our constant moves this world is not our home. Now, sometimes we've been able to stay in the same place for years, but sometimes not. But uh, sometimes it helps to always be on the move, um, to recognize there's another place. But these songs that we sang this morning, as with other hymns, speak of a place of permanency, of heaven, which is our eternal home, which we're going to talk about again one more time this morning. Um, this is our grand destination. Uh, this is the place or the experience that our Heavenly Father has been planning for us since the creation of the world. He's been planning for us to live with Him. It was His intention in the Garden of Eden to do that, but sin uh, entered quite quickly and His entire plan was ruined by our choice as human beings to be rebellious, and it's caused a separation or a rift. It's been healed through Jesus Christ, but still the ultimate dwelling is still yet to come, the permanent place where there will be no tears, there will be no parting, there will be no sorrow. Those things are yet to come. And this morning we're going to explore two themes about our heavenly home. We looked at it two weeks ago as a real place and a place that is absent, the heartbreak and the pain of this world. Uh, today we're going to look at two themes, uh, who will be there 
and then we'll look at what will heaven be like. We looked at what will be absent before. In our second part this morning, we'll look at what heaven will be like um, and try to answer some of the questions that people always ask about heaven. Uh, will there be marriage there? Will I know people? Uh, what body will I have? Things like that. We'll see the best we can uh, what Scripture says about those uh, answers, and then we'll look at maybe how we ought to see the experience overall with things that we're not quite sure about. But first of all, who will be there? Who will be in heaven? Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that those who have rebelled against God and died in that state of rebellion and never wanted God part of their life, do not want Him telling them what to do, do not want to feel accountable to Him, do not want to experience His love and His grace. There's no place in Scripture that says they will be there in a place where others will see God face to face. Simply because they did not want God in their life. They did not want Him controlling anything. They didn't want to have to think about Him. They didn't want to go to places where He was honored. And God is more or less granting what they wanted. Just eternally. The opposite destination of heaven is... Uh, more than what I think people thought life without God will look like. Because here the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But the destination of hell is worse than anyone could imagine. Because God's absence is fully felt. But in heaven, you will have those who are there by intention. Or simply those by the fact of the state of their life as God sees it. They will be there. First of all, of who will be there will be those who have not sinned or are incapable of sinning. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. But when Scripture says all have sinned, it's talking about a deliberate act upon those who are capable of sin. It doesn't say infants have sinned. Uh, scripture not, does not entertain the idea that people are born inheriting the sins of their parents. We, are, we become sinners by virtue of our own choice, just as Adam and Eve made the choice to sin, to rebel against God. And we'll talk about those who have received salvation in spite, despite of their sin in just a moment. But Scripture embraces the idea that if someone has not sinned at all by virtue of their age, or they have not sinned by virtue of their mental incapability of committing sin, they would be in heaven. One of the most painful things of life is when an infant dies, or a young child dies unexpectedly, or in a car accident, of some kind or at the hands of someone else, of disease, some kind of sickness. People ask, well, where, where will they be? There's the natural presumption they will be in heaven. But there's biblical support for that idea by the way Jesus talked about children. Look at Matthew chapter 18, just a moment. Matthew chapter 18. This text is not about heaven. It's not about who will be there, but it does give us a glimpse of how Jesus sees children and how that we can be safe to say that small children, should they die prematurely, 
apart from baptism, apart from claiming Jesus as their Lord by confessing Him as Lord, they will still be seen in a saved state. Matthew chapter 18, it says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child whom He placed among them. And He said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's pause here, but later on he goes on to talk about a curse upon someone who will cause one of these little children to stumble. But then in verse 10 11, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Which is a very beautiful, intriguing text, the idea that children have their angels in heaven that see the face of the Father. Now yet... Despite this text talking more about the humility of children and the teachability of children, there also, I believe, is the idea here of the purity of children that Jesus is embracing. The idea that they have not sinned, they have not rebelled against God. Did they do things that are wrong at times? Did they do something against their parents? Yes, we saw that with uh, William and Kate's little child in the Jubilee. Uh, he was acting up right there. Uh, uh, remember that scene uh, last week? A uh, teacher saw that completely differently, uh, as a lot of people did. We did not see that very funny. We saw that kids come into our classroom. Uh, but little children act as little children. But the decision to commit moral wrong is something that at least comes later on in usually the teen years. And even then, when does God hold someone accountable? We'll address that in just a moment. Um, those who might be incapable of sin. Someone who is born uh, mentally impaired to the degree that they cannot adequately make moral decisions about right and wrong and understand God's standards simply by the nature of their mind and how they were born, I think you could safely say because they have not sinned. They've not made a conscious decision like Adam and Eve did to do the opposite of what God wanted or like you and I have done. They would be considered not accountable. And it would be safe to say they are in heaven. We don't have to worry about a, our God sending them to the opposite place because they've simply not sinned because of their mental incapability. But when does someone become responsible to respond, even as a child? It's interesting in Numbers chapter 32, verse 11, when there was a punishment upon the nation of Israel that rebelled and did not want to go into the promised land. That God set forth that all those that are aged 19 and younger could still go into the promised land, but those that are 20 and older could not. Now, if people struggled with when does God see moral capability or accountability, that might be a good, safe place to start. I would not say, hey, no one needs to respond to the gospel till they're, till they're 19. That's not the point. But God looks later on, I believe, in teen years more than younger. Even though someone might have a sense of heaven and hell and a sense of responsibility towards God, that fully developed sense of moral accountability may not be till the later teen years. When we look in the New Testament of people being baptized, uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says, even though all the people had seen the miracles in the city, the apostles were baptizing men and women. They weren't seeking out small children to be baptized. They weren't baptizing infants. 
They weren't just trying to run the numbers up by getting a bunch of younger kids that were impressionable. They were looking for those that not only had a sense of moral guilt, but who could fully understand the gospel. To understand who Jesus as the Son of God was and, and understand the nature of who He was, understand their own nature, that implies some advanced understanding that usually doesn't come till a more advanced age. So I think it is safe biblically to say those who would be, will be in heaven are those who have not sinned or are incapable of sinning. Those dear children that were shot down in Texas, we can be safe to say they are with their heavenly Father. As painful as it is to think about how they arrived there early, is beyond comprehension. But we can say they are safely there from a sin-torn world that entered into their classroom one day. But where the focus of Scripture is, as far as those who are in heaven, it's upon this area. It's those who have been rescued will be those who primarily make up heaven. Those who've been rescued or those who've been saved. I want to go through briefly some text. We'll spend a little more time on some than others. But Romans chapter 5, verse 9, these are just representative texts that speak to a theme that we know well. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we shall also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is a representative text of the entire scope of Scripture that speaks that God came through His Son to rescue people. But the word most commonly used is to save them. And notice here Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, to save them from God's wrath. That is God's punishment upon rebellious actions that are simply called in Scripture sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, And the wages of sin is death. But God could not stand to see us all experiencing that consequence because of our choice. And He sent His Son to save us from our sins. To save us from God's wrath because there's only one alternative. It's not going to some neutral state where you just drop out. It's eternal punishment. God came to save us from that through His Son. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 now. There's so many wonderful places that describe this, what's called eternal purpose of God. But Ephesians chapter 1 is one place I want to look. Verse 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1. Here Paul writes to the Ephesians, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14 now, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. 
Here the salvation process is being described. He says in verse 13, you were included in Christ, that is you were put in this saved relationship. When you heard the word of truth, you heard that you can be saved from your sin through Jesus Christ. You heard the gospel, then it says you believe, that means you responded to it. And then he says, upon salvation, you were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the water and of the Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit comes into our life at baptism, as does the forgiveness of our sins. And notice one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promised seal guaranteeing what? Our inheritance. Not by our goodness or how well we've kept all of God's laws, even after baptism, but by simply the fact that we've been rescued by the Son of God and that rescue process continues on throughout our life. As Jesus works as our intercessor, our mediator, continually cleanses us from our sin as we confess them, we are in what Scripture primarily calls a saved state. Look now at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1, 13. Notice the repeated nature of this teaching. And notice the word used. Instead of saved. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love this word rescued. Even though I love the word saved, sometimes people, at least in today's culture, seem put off by the idea of being saved or you saved. Well, how about we use the word rescued instead? We can use both. The scripture uses both. But the idea of being rescued. Every once in a while you see on the local news, someone decides to climb down one of these cliffs in our area around the Pacific Ocean. Helicopter has to come in. Search and rescue comes in and someone repels down or a group of men or women repel down and grab someone there on the, on the edge right there and they put the lifeline around him, and they pull him up, and that person's hanging on for dear life. They're hanging on to their rescuer. They're being rescued because they're there on the cliff because some reason they decided to go down there, and someone apart from themselves, because they can't climb out on their own, brings them up into a rescued state. That's essentially what Jesus does for us through the gospel. We're helpless to get up out of the mire of our own sin. He comes to rescue us through His Son. So those in heaven are rescued people, not perfect people, not people that have earned their way there. No one will earn their way into heaven. Don't even try. That's the quickest way to go backwards. But put yourself in the hands of God in His grace through His Son. You still have to hold on to the rope when you're being rescued, but understand that saved people are being rescued by someone else other than themselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His Son. This is the continual theme of Scripture. The primary inhabitants of heaven will be rescued people that allowed themselves to be rescued. There's some where the, the rescued, the repel, people repelled down the cliff, but they said, I just want to stay here. I just want to stay here and go away. I don't, want to, I don't want you search and rescue people around me. There's some that have said that to Jesus Christ. 
That's your choice. But heaven's going to be full of rescued people. And also those who have remained rescued. Look at Colossians 1.23 now. We looked at Colossians 1.13, how that He's rescued us. But look at the responsibility now of rescued people. We'll start with verse 21. But we'll look at closely verse 23, Colossians 1. Here Paul writes, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you, or rescued, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 23 now. If you what? If you continue, right, Mary Gail? If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Here, once a person is rescued by Jesus Christ, he, he comes to them and they reach out by belief, confessing Him as Lord, repenting of their sins, being baptized, be forgiven. They are now rescued. But you still have to hang on to the rescuer. You are only safe in the arms of Jesus. But imagine someone being rescued by the Coast Guard. And the buoy's been put around them. Or they're being lifted up in the baskets. You ever seen that? Those are amazing, those basket rescues where they lower the basket down. and see. Have you ever seen when someone try to crawl out? i got to get out of here. I want to go back into the sea and tread water as long as I can. You, you don't see that. Or when someone's being pulled up from people that repel down to get them, you don't see them trying to shake off the fire department and trying to get themselves released from the lifeline. You only see that with Jesus. Where somehow people that have been rescued decide they want to go back into the ocean or they want to go back to hanging on on the cliffside because they like that existence better than being saved. As difficult as that is to fathom, it's true that a person can walk away from their saved state. And Scripture speaks in no uncertain terms about doing that. In one place, Scripture says it's better that they'd not been saved at all. Because they experienced the joy of salvation, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but they turned their back on it like a dog returning to its vomit, Peter says. 2 Peter 2. Or a pig going back after being washed, going back into the mire, which is a combination of its own food and feces. Those who have remained rescued, that have stayed with Jesus Christ, will find themselves in heaven. No one's going to be there accidentally. No one's going to be there against their will. No one's going to be there that I never had an idea I'd be there. Will God make decisions about people that might be different than our own? We looked about the, on the thief on the cross where Jesus made a decision about him. And God will likely do that with others. 
But no one can presume that they will be an exception to the gospel or, or they could rebel against God. They could say, I don't want any part of you, but I still want to be in heaven. I don't want you now, but God will be okay with you after death. No one can entertain that kind of thinking and have any kind of security. Those in heaven will be those who have been rescued and remained rescued. That's why the gospel message is always urgent and always needed. And scripture always speaks about someone staying true to what they came into. Let's look at a couple applications before we go into what heaven will be like. First of all, as we've addressed already, those who are rescued will hold tight to their rescuer. Again, you don't see people trying to crawl out of the basket that are being taken out of the ocean. They stay in there. Or if they're strapped around a Coast Guard personnel or person, they will stay with them and hold tightly till they're taken to shore. They hold tight to the rescuer. That's what rescued people do if you know what you're being rescued from. You don't let go. And that's our challenge, and that's why we assemble every first day of the week, to make sure we know we need to stay with our rescuer because there's a lot of attractions out there, and there's a lot of things in our entire culture, especially in this area, that argue against even needing to be saved, let alone staying saved. We are in the minority, and Christians need each other, and that's why these assemblies are so important. So we might hold tight to our rescuer. <coughs> Secondly, those who love God will obey Him. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, God is the author of eternal salvation, to all who obey Him. Elsewhere, Scripture talks about those who love God. And all things work together for those who love Him. James chapter 1, verse 12 talks about how those who persevere will receive a crown of life. Heaven is a place for people that want to be with God. That want to give their lives to Him. And heaven is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Even though their life is full of stumbling and at times bad choices and sinful decisions, they've still gotten back up. They've dusted themselves off. They come back to God because that's who they really want to be with. At times they've been attracted to this world and have followed paths that are not healthy or right or flat out wrong at times, but they don't stay there very long. And they decide they want to be back with their Savior. And they repent of sin. They never let their conscience become so hardened that they don't have a sense they need to be with God. And when they come back to God, they love God and they love being rescued by Him. And they want to stay close. A lot of times you'll see stories on television of someone that re received a heart transplant. Someone that died prematurely. And the person that receives the transplant always wants to stay close to the family. Perhaps the child or the adult that died that gave up their heart because they signed papers saying they'd do that. The one receiving that heart wants to stay close to the family. Or the person that allowed one of their body parts to be given to them. And those who recognize they're rescued will always want to stay close to the rescuer. That is consistent within Scripture. Here's our second area we'll look at this morning. What will heaven be like? 
We're going to go through these quickly. I put the scriptures there that you can refer to to give some clarity, perhaps, or at least some direction with the questions for you to look at. We'll look at a few. Uh, a lot of times we have questions about heaven. Okay, we, we know we want to be there. And we know that's God's intended destination for us. But sometimes we, we ask very earthly questions about our existence because this is all we know. I know the people I've been in a relationship with. I know my mom and dad. I, I know things that are familiar. I know what I like in life to be comfortable. I know I like to be happy. I don't like bad thoughts. I, wanna, uh, I don't want sad thoughts in heaven. And Scripture addresses a lot of these things. But we still have questions because we try to evaluate heaven by what makes us comfortable or what gives us assurance in this life. And that's understandable. So we're going to look at how Scripture addresses some of the commonly asked questions about heaven, but then I want to take us to another level about maybe how to look at this. First of all, the question people often ask is, will we know each other in heaven? Will we recognize each other as we do in this building today? We, will, we recognize family members that perhaps departed from this life years ago. Maybe people that died as very young children. We, we want to know, will we, will we know them in heaven? And that's a Reasonable question. It's interesting in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, when David was mourning the death of his son, who had died, and the presumption is that that child who died in infancy would go on to be with the Lord in heaven. Acts chapter 2 says David was a prophet, so he spoke words that would reflect God's values. But David says, as he mourns that child and as people come in trying to understand that mourning, he says of the child, the child will not come to me, but I will go to him. That's foundation that not only is that child in heaven, but David would understand he'd have a relationship with that child or he would see that child again. You look at Luke chapter 16, the teaching about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus retained his identity even though he had died and gone on to be with the Lord. He still retained the identity of being Lazarus. So there's nothing in Scripture that says we will become nameless floating ghosts or anything like that, or that we will lose any appearance of what we look like now, and that we'll become just nameless figures. There's nothing in Scripture that entertains that idea. Scripture supports the idea that we retain our identity, even though our bodies are going to completely change, not so much in how we look, but the nature of our bodies will change the resurrected body where we'll live forever with it. But I think we could say that we will know each other. We will know each other enough. It won't be like there's a sea of people we don't recognize or people are unrecognizable entirely. That is not something in Scripture. Second question that's interesting has a little more biblical clarity to it. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll look at that in just a moment. Matthew 22. Uh, will we be in relationships? Uh, parent, child. Will those relationships continue? Uh, husband, wife. Uh, friends. Will we, will we still have these relationships? Probably the marriage questions most often. Well, Will I still have my husband in heaven? Will we interact or at least see each other as husband and wife in heaven? 
In Matthew chapter 22, starting verse 23, there's a scene where the Sadducees, which is one of the Jewish groups at that time, who did not believe in the resurrection, and they did so incorrectly, they thought they had a really good question for Jesus. What about someone who had multiple wives and uh, the wife died, uh, or I think it's the other way around, the husband died, and then who will they be married to in heaven if they were married to multiple people, even due to death, in this earth? <clears throat> Let's look at Jesus' answer to that. Verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, that's Jesus, with a question. Verse 24, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Of the seven, since all of them were married to her. They just thought they had a question that just eliminated the idea of the resurrection because they couldn't figure out who she'd be married to. Verse 29, you are in error, Jesus replied, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 30 now, at the resurrection, People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. There's much we can look at here. Let's just look at verse 30. <clears throat> Jesus speaks to the resurrected state or our future destiny. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. He's first indicating there will, be not, there will not be marriage like we understand it now as far as people getting married in heaven. So their whole question is irrelevant. And it also speaks to maybe the marital state of people. It doesn't mean that if you see your husband or wife in heaven, they're going to walk away from you and say, hey, I have nothing to do with you anymore. We're in heaven now. Uh, there's, that's not the idea. But simply earthly relationships will be changed. And marriages as we understand them now will be different in heaven. Will there still be a bond? I'm quite sure there will be to some extent between you and your marriage partner. But it may not look like it looks now. I think we could assume that quite clearly from what Jesus says, and that's why that question about who is he married to or who will they be married to is really not relevant. He says, you will be like the angels in heaven, which appear not to have marriages, or perhaps even relationships as we understand them now. That doesn't mean parents will not know their children or children will not recognize their parents. But simply the nature of these relationships, I believe in Scripture, will be changed by what clues we do have. To what extent, I'm not sure. But we'll look at an overriding thought that covers this in just a moment. Number three, will we experience sadness? No. Twice in the Revelation 7 verse 17 and 21 verse 4, it says God will wipe every tear from their eye. Sometimes the most painful question people have about heaven, what about someone that's not there? that I thought would be there. Sometimes people think, well, if, I, if that person will not be in heaven with me, with me, I don't want to go. 
which is said out of pure emotion. I don't think we really believe that, but that's how painful the thought is about either our children not being there or a spouse not being there. And how will we handle that? One, I think it's not our job or it won't be our job to figure out how we handle that in heaven. God's not going to tell us we just need to get over that. God simply says, I will wipe every tear from their eye. Which speaks to whatever sadness they had on earth or whatever heartbreak they might experience, that will be taken away. And it's one of the joys of heaven. That whatever caused us sadness in this life will not be true in heaven, even if we think it might cause sadness. Sadness will not be a reality or grief or sorrow of heaven. Another question is, how old will I be? We tend to think of our body, at least in our best state in this earth. Well, that's the body that's going to be in heaven. But as we age, we wonder, will my 80 or 90-year-old body be in heaven? Or 100-year-old? Will that be how I wander around in heaven? Or, or little children, will they be always three? Scripture doesn't speak to that directly. When Scripture does speak to the resurrection, he speaks about a glorified body, a body that experiences immortality, and the best way I can describe that, whatever version of our body or of our life we'll have in heaven, it'll be the best version. However God decides that or shapes that or determines that upon the resurrection, it's going to be the best and we won't argue with it because we'll know it's the best. So I was trying to wrestle too long with, well, will I be like, will little children that maybe died at three, will they be at three in heaven? Or will I have my 100-year-old body there or my 70-year-old? I think we ought to spend not too much time with that. We're going to have our best body and our best self, both mentally and physically. And 1 Corinthians 15 supports that. What will we do there? Some people fear being bored because they've seen pictures of people standing on clouds in white garments, and they can't imagine doing that for eternity because they can't imagine doing that right now. There's some people that cannot sit still. And they, I can't just be hanging. And heaven is not attractive to some people. They, they'd rather go there than to hell, but they're, they're not really motivated in this life because they're enjoying things now and heaven appears boring to them. Scripture indicates we will both reign and serve in heaven. But the dimensions of those two responsibilities, that we will serve God forever and ever, and what that will look like is really not defined. The scripture also defi- or describes us reigning in heaven, a place, a place of supreme importance to the uh, understanding of God. And with most Christians who have lived in humble circumstances, that's seen or presented as an attractive thing. But yet the full development of what that looks like is not spelled out. We're definitely not just standing around or floating around. That is not a picture in heaven. I want to look at two applications before we close this morning. As far as how we see these earthly questions and how we look at our heaven. Go ahead, Nathaniel, to the last one. This is the best way I could word it. I'll just say it two or three times, but I think this is kind of it. Go and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. We'll look at how this text kind of supports the idea. As we ask all these questions about heaven, 
What will I look like? Will I be old or young? Or will I recognize people? What will I be doing when I get up? Will I get up in the morning? Or will I go to bed at night? Or we ask these things that all reflect things we think about in the here and now. Here's what I think is true in Scripture. The concerns of our earthly questions, the things that we get caught up with right now, will be eclipsed, which means covered up, by our eternal experience. That is whatever we're thinking about now, as far as, well, we need to have this, or I need to be doing that, I can't, I can't let this happen. We're not even going to be thinking like that once we arrive in heaven. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, as he speaks about the wonders of the gospel that were not yet fully revealed, he quotes from Isaiah 64, verse 9. He says, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love Him. Again, what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love Him. If that's true just about the gospel, about God's wondrous work through Jesus Christ. How much more is that true about what we're going to experience in heaven? There's just no way to fully compare it. Anything in this life, and we can still ask our questions, but those questions will be eclipsed by what we'll realize. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, the Lord says, Behold, I make everything new. We're going to be on a whole nother level that we can't even fully fathom right now. John? Yes, Michael? Read uh, 1 John 3, 3, that may be hope. I want to take advantage of this brother's recommendation. 1 John 3, 3. We're going to go there. 1 John 3, 3. Description of what we will be like. That I think supports. Thank you, Michael. I always said we ought to be doing some team teaching here. But, uh, and we're doing it right now. Here's what we do find. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. Speaking of our resurrected body, sorry, verse 2. Dear friends, we are now children of God. And what we will be has yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall what? We shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And we talked about the resurrected body in, in weeks ago. We talked about Christ's physical appearance. It appeared a lot like what he looked like before his death, but yet he could walk right through a wall and appear in the room with his disciples. He had this immortal body that would be with his Father forever in heaven. And here John is telling us, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And even though we can't fully fathom that, that's a level of existence and of glory and of wonder beyond anything we can imagine or have now. Do you think that's the heart of it, Michael, or would you add to that? Yeah, where Scripture does point us in that direction. That whatever it is, it's going to be greater than anything we know. And we're not going to be disappointed. We're not going to be challenged. I thought, this would, I thought that will not be part of our life. 
The most beautiful thing is our last thought. I want to read the first five verses of Revelation 22 and we finish. We, are, we are, will see his face. We will see our Father's face. Revelation 22 verse 1 says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's our eternal destiny. But within this text it says, and they will see His face. We've not yet done that. We've prayed to our God. We've tried to imagine Him. We've seen His voice, or we've heard His voice in Scripture. We've seen His wondrous works throughout time as we read the Bible. But in heaven we are going to see His face. And for those who have loved Him in this life, for those who have given their life to Him, that's our greatest joy, to see our Father face to face and to see Him always in that state. And Scripture says, if that's what you've wanted in this life, you will not be denied. You will see the face of your Father and be with Him forever. May we pursue that. May we stay on this pilgrimage. May we not be tempted to let go of the rescue rope or jump out of the cage by the things that draw us in this world or because other people are jumping out or other people are not interested in being rescued and they rather drown. Don't let that be you. And let it not be us. May we keep close to each other through the gospel of Jesus Christ because the one who stepped out of heaven to rescue us is not going to let us go. We can push him away and jump out, but he will not let us go. And he will take us home to heaven. Amen. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. And may we see it that way. We're going to sing a song now to encourage us to stay the course, to stay rescued, if we've been rescued, to be faithful, or if we've not yet been rescued, we've wanted to be rescued, we've thought about being rescued, but we've not grabbed onto the rope yet. Or we haven't got inside the basket, and that's Jesus. We've not repented or confessed Him as Lord, or been baptized. The chance is always right now. Today is the day of salvation. You could always be rescued. That's the beauty of being rescued in Jesus. You could always be rescued. But you've got to want to be rescued. He will not force you to be rescued. You've got to want to be. Amen. May this song that we're going to sing in just a moment encourage us to hold on or to reach out. Whatever we need to do, may we do it. Let's stand and sing.